Ladies and gents, my name is Matt Locke and you're listening to, and perhaps watching, the Unleashing Potential podcast. It's in these episodes that I chat with a range of progressive individuals who are unleashing their potential on the world around them at work and in life. With that said, I'm glad you're here so you can join me as we take a deep dive into today's guest. Neil, welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. Um, I'd love hey, if you nice could... to be here. Yeah, thank you. Uh, it'd be great if you could just, I guess, let's kick off with you explaining just a little bit about who you are, where you are in the world, and uh, we'll dive in from there. So I'm here in London. Um, I run a little business called The Conscious Professional, um, and I've got a journey which took me from being a Reiki master to being a barrister, which is um, a trial lawyer, to running my own training and coaching firm, which is all centered around mindfulness and conscious leadership. Awesome. Now, I am I know when we had a pre-chat, and uh, as is always the way, I, I, I don't tend to ask too many questions so that it's nice and fresh and genuinely organic when we go live like we are now. I am itching to know um, how the journey of becoming a barrister um, took a turn to, to not being a barrister anymore and taking a very different career path. But actually, what I'm interested in as the first question, I suppose, is to understand what it was that motivated you to put the huge amount of effort into becoming a barrister in the first place, only to find that actually it, it wasn't going to be your future. Yeah, great question. Um, and, um, you know, I think we make these decisions very young um, and realistically the, the reason that I started heading towards the legal profession um, as a child was because I, I love stationery um, and it seemed like the lawyers had the best stationery like I collected stationery when I was a kid my mum used to work at conferences as a hostess and she would bring back all these kind of free pads and pens and all sorts of kind of freebies from these companies and I had a drawer that was just like stacked full of stationery um and that that probably led my my thinking a bit I suppose I was reasonably good at like English and history and the sorts of things where the adults around you start saying have you thought about law um I was like okay um did some work experience and um yeah and then it got a bit more interesting when I started realizing there was two routes um same as in Australia uh, as I understand it you can be a solicitor more of a kind of office-based lawyer or the barrister trial-based lawyer um and um because I was also sort of developing an interest in performance um the barrister thing seemed like a sort of safer way of heading towards something a bit more in the acting sort of public speaking realm um than going full on as as an actor which you know I, I was quite shy growing up so it took me a while to sort of get into acting which I did mainly in new legal legal theater isn't it yeah exactly exactly it's um yeah a lot of big personalities stomping around a courtroom um trying to sound eloquent and persuade people of stuff so <laughs> and often they do sound eloquent and I um in a former life I was a police officer in the UK so I was on the well it depends I guess but yeah I was certainly looking from a different angle let's say yeah. Yeah. <laughs> on the receiving end of those eloquent questions <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah of course examined a lot of police officers in my time <laughs> 
Well, I hope you weren't too hard on but, uh, anyway. <laughs> well, I have to say, I didn't expect that answer. It's the, the, the rationale of why or how you became a barrister or, or went down the legal path. Um, but perhaps that it's interesting though, when we think about the, the, mo the, the really the motivation, the intrinsic motivation that took you off down that path, um, it, it wasn't a deep seated sense of, of writing wrong or, or anything like that. It's interesting, actually, the trigger perhaps was a, an innocent question or a, a, you know, regularly mentioned, oh, you thought about being a lawyer, you got all these pads and pens and so on. It's interesting how that just, that might have been just the trigger at the time without realising it by either party. Yeah. yeah. And I suppose, you know, there was a bit of the kind of idea of, of justice and righting wrongs, which, you know, was appealing. And so as I learned more about it and started to kind of um, understand a bit about what lawyers did, um, what, what kind of, I suppose, kept drawing me on from the initial inspiration um, based in, in paper um, was the, the idea of helping people solve problems. I was always quite sort of um, fascinated by problem solving and felt like that was something that I wanted to be really kind of practical um, in the world. Um, so it was a bit of a disappointment when I got to law school um, at Bristol University to realise that it was the academic study of law for three years. So it was like completely not practical at all. <laughs> it was all about, you know, learning these old cases. And you know, looking back, one understands this is an important grounding um, in how to, you know, become a, 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 a good lawyer, sort of well-rounded lawyer, and to think about things from lots of different angles and, and see where it comes from. But um, yeah, it took a while before the practical stuff kicked in. Sure. And so you were practicing as a barrister. Uh, I mean, how many years did you do that before finally taking the step to take a follow a different career path? Yeah. So I trained for five and I practiced for seven or eight. So, um, yeah. From, from what age? So I guess that was, yeah, through university. Yeah. Through so probably about... Um, 18 to 22, 23, um, studying and then practice till um, I think it must have been 30 when I left. Hmm. It's, um, did it, I mean, it was a huge move. Did it feel like a huge move at the time, a shift um, to step away from all of that that you'd known and to, to I guess, and the income that it provided to, to pursue a different path? So, it's a sort of a yes or yes and no type of an answer to that one. Um, because um, whilst I had been, you know, studying law, going through you know, the early stages of my career, I'd also been growing my interest in, in Reiki and meditation, um, which had actually crossed my path before I became a, um, well, actually before I, I, I studied law. Um, so I, I started learning Reiki when I was, you know, by chance, really, um, in my late teens, so 18, around 18. Okay. Um, I was out in the States and um, working at a kid's camp, and there was an Australian uh, Reiki master from Melbourne who was the nature counsellor. And, um, yeah, he ended up teaching me and a few others Reiki across the summer, and it kind of completely blew my mind open to the energy kind of world, I suppose. 
Um, and just, so, sorry, for those not familiar, um, could you just give us a just let, let, watch Reiki, just for those who are not familiar with it? Yeah, so so Reiki is a energy healing system. Um, it's a hands-on or hands-off system. Um, a lot of people might have come across it at a spa or on a retreat. There's often a Reiki practitioner there. Um, the idea of it is it's about channeling universal source energy for the benefit of your client. Um, and a lot of people experience it as uh, relaxing. They might experience kind of pleasant physical sensations through the body. They might see different visual kind of effects or, or images. And, and some Reiki um, practitioners will um, work specifically with particular ailments and so on. And um, you know, it, it's another way of looking at health, another kind of angle into it. Yeah, sure. Thank you. Um, appreciate it. So um, 18 to 20 issue were becoming more, much more involved in that. Yeah, so um, as I was going through uni in the summers, I was spending my summers out in the States. And um, so, yeah, there was that one year where I, I learned it, sort of the first beginning bit. The next year I, I learned again with a, a different person, but who was also a fellow student the first year. And then the next year I went out to um, Kiribati in the Pacific, where my original Reiki master was now uh, on mission. And um, I spent the summer there learning um, the, the master levels of, of Reiki and um, a type of Reiki. So my, my main practice is Yusui Reiki, and then uh, I learned another practice, which is Karuna Reiki, which brings in toning and sound. Um, so, so yeah, so it sort of became a real fascination. And by the time I was practicing as a barrister, I also had a little side business uh, called the Holistic Life Practice. So that's what I mean by saying, you know, it wasn't the biggest of surprises yeah, that there was sure. something else coming. Um, you know, having said that, I had this little business going on. It wasn't producing anywhere near the income of my legal practice. Not, not many jobs uh, do. <laughs> um, or all kind of promising to, if I even if I sort of gave things up, it wasn't like, oh, here's a here's the replacement um, mortgage. Oh, sure. yeah. um, but um the actual kind of the final impetus to step away um, came about eight years in and I was just walking through the car park of um, in a temple in London. So it's sort of crazy um, area in town, which looks like it's, you know, sort of from the olden days and there's these beautiful old traditional buildings and squares and churches and gardens. And, you know, it's, it's lovely to walk through there. I was walking through the car park after trial. A friend of mine bounded up to me who I hadn't seen for ages um, and said, hey, Neil, how's it going? Um, I hear you're one of the rising stars of the civil bar. Now, as he said those words to me, what I heard in my head was your star is rising in the wrong field. You have to leave. So that was like the insight that landed. And it was um, it was delivered with such a vibration of truth it was like a gong going off inside my body and it was like okay this is this is now happening um and so it was sort of that moment that catalyzed all of the what if questioning into action in that moment um so it still took me five months to wrap wrap it all up 
Um, but um, yeah, that's yeah, that's but you were clearly primed. You were ready, and it just needed that event. Yeah, I didn't know I was ready, but yeah, looking back, I, was, I must have been ready because I said yes. Yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. Well, you listened. Did you have a similar moment when you were heading out of the police or heading out of the country? Oh, well, the police was a long time ago. Um, I, I actually was a conversation with my father. I mean, I, I went from six, uh, at 16, you know, I was in the police cadets and then at 18, I was um, wearing a big hat, walking around the streets of Birmingham. And uh, I did, I think, five years of that. So seven very formative years um, of my sort of young life. Um, and... Yeah, it was actually a conversation with my father, um, who sat me down, and there were two two parts to the conversation. The first was, um, "We love you, but we don't like the person you're becoming. You're becoming very hard, very hard, and cynical um, at such a young age." Um, and the other thing was, the he was a dental surgeon, um, and yeah, I had you know, my. Myself and my brothers had a lovely upbringing, you know, very privileged upbringing in many ways, and which we were aware of. And he just said, look, you, you know, you've had a great upbringing. It's entirely up to you what you do for a career and we'll support you in anything you do. But you just have to understand that the, the salary, you know, the earning potential you have in the police isn't going to fund anything like the lifestyle that you've enjoyed. Um, and uh, it, it was the first part of that that really struck the chord, I have to say. It was like, oh. To, to be told by your dad um, that we love you, but we don't really like the person you're becoming. That really hit home. So that was actually the trigger for me. Um, yeah, I had until that moment considered, yeah, I mean, I enjoyed the police um, and had a good, <laughs> you know, had some really solid friendships, some which I still enjoy today. Um, and it was all very exciting and, and so on for a young, a young man in the UK. Um, but that conversation was the turning point. And within six months, I had taken, at the time they offered you a, a career break where you could take up to five years off, uh, knowing that you could return to the job. And I knew I wouldn't return, but it was nice having that little safety net, I suppose. Um, yeah. And that gave me the impetus to head overseas. I went to Canada and, and uh, yeah, what was going to be just a bit of travel around Canada. We got some friends in Canada, family friends, and I was gonna just bounce into there and then out again and off I'd go and I ended up staying and working for them and formed yeah a very new career path which took me back to the UK and ultimately here to to here in Australia and Singapore and everywhere else I've been a bit of a gypsy um but it was interesting that um there was a very clear moment for me but it was a conversation with someone else um I think the difference was I hadn't considered a career change I hadn't considered not being a police officer. That was all I knew in my ad adult life, actually. Um, and it, yeah, I, but I was open to it, clearly. Uh, yeah. It was a shock tactics, maybe. Um, but I, yeah, I listened and I ultimately took action quite quickly. Yeah. Yeah. So I suppose we both sort of recognized a truth in the message yeah. that came and that, that spurred the action. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So um, I am interested, the conscious professional. How did that come to be then? Because you said it was a different company. You had the sort of side, the side business when you were, were a barrister. You had the side business. Um, and did that morph into the con conscious professional or was this something new? 
yeah, I wouldn't say it morphed in. It's a, it's a, it was a new entity, if I can put it that way. Um, I, you know, I left and the holistic life practice was already running. So I kept doing that. Um, it wasn't enough to sort of keep everything sort of going. Um, so I, I started doing some freelance training work um, here and there as well. Um, but it was about three years into that, uh, well, my, my teacher calls it my walkabout phase. Um, <laughs> sort of, uh, makes sense to a lot of the audience here. Yeah, so the three year walkabout phase. Um, in a meditation, the name, logo, and the subject, mindfulness, landed um, all at once. And just, you know, it wasn't there. And then there it was. <laughs> um, and that's a quite a difficult process to sort of understand, really, or kind of explain. So it's best not to think about it too much, but just to say thank you and off we go. Um, <laughs> but it was um, it was from there, really, that that everything sort of started moving in a clear direction. Um, and, um, you know, it was very much a, a corporate facing entity um and it was all about mindfulness which was and this is in 2012 so um in the uk mindfulness had not landed as a mainstream oh, thing that, that would have been a tough sell i think back in 2012 it it was a non-sell <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was being uh, gentle <laughs> yeah it was very much not so. so i went to like you know the the network that i had in the sort of training and learning development people and it's like oh this is what i'm going to be doing and they're like we don't want it we like you but we don't want that no thank you we don't know what it is we definitely don't want it thanks for coming in <laughs> like this is great <laughs> Um, so I started selling them professional resilience courses and adding in a module on mindfulness. Um, and then they were like, oh, we like this mindfulness stuff. This is a few years later, but mind. Um, and uh, yeah, it gradually built built out from there. Interesting, though, isn't it? The language, though, um, completely yeah, open to the resilience training. Yeah. Uh, perhaps without understanding what the training actually entailed and why but just the language was more acceptable then yeah well i mean the resilience course you know that's actually remained our most popular course and has sort of grown and grown because it's modular um so you know they'd be taking on a a, a training for a couple of hours or half a day or, or whatever mm. and you know, half an hour of that would be mindfulness snuck in amongst kind of personal well-being digital well-being emotional intelligence you know a bit of this and that and um um whereas now you know most of the things i teach about even though the topic isn't um often directly mindfulness it's a mindful approach to the topic um, and I use mindfulness as the kind of foundational practice from which we resource ourselves from our own experience to have something to kind of work with in the session. So, um, yeah, it's become just kind of central as the practice. Sure. I mean, so the um, are there any silver linings to the pandemic? I think there are. <clears throat> and one of them, I believe, is a greater awareness and acceptance and understanding and um, normalization around not just the terminology, but the reality of mental health and the importance of mindfulness and um, 
health uh, and working environment, human connection, um, which there's no downside to any of that in terms of it being more acceptable and, and there being greater awareness around it. Um, I still find if I talk about mindfulness, maybe to those who haven't, you know, certainly to those who haven't trained with this yet, um, haven't sort of been through any, any of the sort of ecosystem uh, components, I sometimes find the word mindfulness still seems a bit woo-woo, a bit tree-hugger hippie stuff, a bit, yeah, that's not for me kind of approach. Um, do you still find that? Do you find mindfulness is still somehow, as a term, not widely understood, perhaps? Maybe that's the issue. Um, I, I don't encounter that very much, actually. Um, and I'm not sure if it's because, um, you know, a lot of places that I'm speaking or engaging, um, it's something that they've been dealing with fairly seriously for, you know, certainly... You know, four or five years now. Um, you know, it's always an interesting one to to work with any organisation or individual to find the language and the access point for them to. You know, usually there's some outcomes that they'd like to improve, and if mindfulness is one of the ways in which you can, you know, you're pretty sure you can help them. Um, then it's really just a case of, you know, how do I build a bridge from what I know and a practice that I know could be really resourcing for you to, to where you're coming from. Um, and, um, you know, I think as, as more and more people, um, you know, find people in their friend circle, in their colleague circle, in their, you know, people higher up in the business who are talking about it, who are doing it, um, you know, it becomes more and more, you know, well, why wouldn't you? For me, it's become, um, you know, similar to talking about going to the gym. You know, people talk about meditation at the same sort of level as that. And I think as a practice, it will become that as well. Like, you know, everybody knows what the gym is. Everybody knows that going to the gym is generally good for most people. Some people do it and some people don't do it. And that's kind of that. And I think it's mindfulness is is one of those things as well. Um, and you know, gradually people people will kind of realize um, that there's something there and you know they'll go on their own journey for whether it's for them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, how, how do you describe mindfulness? How to someone who perhaps wasn't entirely clear about what mindfulness because we hear mindfulness, wellness, we you know, all these sort of terms, they often get kind of thrown together and um how, how would you describe mindfulness so um i think the simplest way for people to understand it and, and the reality of of what it is in our current society now is mindfulness is the secular rebrand of meditation um so you know you sometimes get into very strange discussions with people kind of almost arguing about the differences between you know, mindfulness and meditation and so on and it's like well you know it, it is a it's a practice of silence right um we're teaching people to do it as a formal seated practice and then to apply that in an informal way into their lived experience um 
And uh, the, the idea of this is that it allows us to explore our inner world of consciousness, which is made up of thoughts, emotions, and sensations. Um, and it turns out that this is useful for most people because for most of us in our education and socialization, we haven't really been pointed towards our inner world of thoughts, emotions, and sensations, um, and asked to kind of build our own map to navigate it better. And it turns out that when we do start mapping our inner world of thoughts, emotions, and, say, and sensations, um, that we start realizing, oh, here are all the ways in which I get lost in fear and worry. Um, here are all the ways in which I get um, annihilated by my emotions. Here are all the ways in which I'm able to communicate my inner experience. And here are all the ways I can't. Um, and we start realizing there's a massive kind of practice here of exploring what our inner experience is um, so that we can both know ourselves more fully, um, but also then engage better with the people around us. And it also turns out that in doing this for ourselves, we develop the skills of compassion and listening um, and an appreciation for the inner world of other human beings in a way that might not have been obvious to us if we hadn't done the work on ourselves. Um, so, you know, as, as a route into meditation, um, for me, if anyone is interested in any type of performance or excellence, um, then they have to be looking both outward into the external expression of that skill or what activity into the world, but they also have to have a, an equal and opposite look in um, to see, well, what are the, the functions of programs that you're running um, that are helping and hindering you as you, um, you know, attempt that activity? Um, so, yeah. Yeah, no, thank you. That, that's, um, I think anyone would be clear after listening to that. Um, so thank you. Um, given that you're typically dealing in the C-suite, um, in this case, I yeah, 20 plus years in a corporate environment myself, um, in different parts of the world. And in fact, the last 10 of those, so half of those, close enough to half of those, um, was working for a German company um, who were really a serious employer. They were a good company. They were serious about being, a, you know, turning out good product. Um, and they were serious about being a good employer. Uh, but when it comes down to it, ultimately, they had shareholders. Um, there was a board. There were expectations about the bottom line at the end of the day. And in fairness to them, they were very focused on attracting and retaining talent. Um, so th those were the, the driving commer yeah, commercial realities of what was a very responsible business in many ways, and they continue to be, I would imagine. Um, how, can, how can mindfulness, how can being a conscious professional, how does that speak to those? How does that, how does that work? Because at the end of the day, if you're asking companies to make an investment in these, these services, how do they measure 
the success of them. Um, yeah, how do you approach that? I'm genuinely intrigued. Yeah, so um, I suppose to kind of go wide on that to, to start with, um, yeah, what we're going through at the moment as a global society is a massive shift in consciousness at a time where there's a lot at stake. Um, we've got highly embedded capitalistic systems around the world, um, which have been overly weighted to profit at the extent, um, at the expense of planet and, and people. Um, we have a growing willingness to address this, particularly through COVID. Um, we've had a bit of a sort of slap from mother nature and a sort of go to your room moment for us all to sit down and think about what we've been doing. <laughs> um, and seeing if we can come back with a better attitude. <laughs> um, and um, as a result of that, in this sort of um, renewed intention or sort of groundswell of intention globally to address our fundamental existential problems of you know, climate and environment and um, all the rest of it, we have to also, and this is one of the rules of mindfulness, you have to begin where you are. So we have to begin where we are, which is in each company, looking at how we function, looking at the degree to which we're playing into the old system, um, which is about profit at all costs, and look at ways in which we can gradually or quickly, if it's possible, move towards a more conscious engagement at all levels of the business. Um, you know, so over the years, we've sort of seen the markers in the sort of the rise of the conscious re revolution. You know, we've had books um, out on, on conscious business, conscious capitalism, I think in about 2014 came out which I think still is the best kind of blueprint of how to really think through all the nuts and bolts of the company, um, you know, from its, its purpose and vision mission, but also its higher purpose. It's really important to get the, the higher purpose of the, of the business right. So it's inspired, so it's engaging, so it's attuned to some sort of infinite game in the sort of cynic um, type of model. Um, and to, to think about the leadership strategies, the culture and the stakeholder integration. So the values of the business are really clear and are expressed at all levels through the business. Um, so there's a lot of thinking to do in order just to kind of even overview. That is a piece of, of work which most businesses require someone to help them with. And then from there, it's like, well, what does this look like in our hiring strategy? What does this look like in our retention strategy? What does this look like in our comms? What does this look like in our leadership strategy and our structure in how we, you know, um, you know, say what the roles actually are? All these types of things start to become little itty bitty jobs where we can now start harmonizing towards the higher purpose of the business. 
Um, and of course, there has to be along the way um, still an iron profit. We're not jettisoning capitalism. We're just bringing more awareness into it. That's why it's called conscious capitalism. Um, and mindfulness is a tool of awareness, which is why I think it's foundational to all of this. If we don't have a capacity um, or an intention to be a bit more aware than we were when we started dealing with this 20 years ago, 100 years ago, or however long back, yeah. um, then we're just going to make the same mistakes again. So building awareness is, is key, in my view. Sure. And how far down the path are we? And I guess my real question is, um, are there any really good examples of companies who have adopted a more conscious capitalism approach to the way they operate and the results then demonstrate how worthwhile that is? You know, uh, do we have some first movers out there who operate as great case studies? So I'm always hesitant to give particular companies as, as case studies because they, they change their fortune and so on. Whole Foods um, was basically the, the, um, the book Conscious Capitalism came out of John Mackey's CEO-ship of Whole Foods and how he kind of managed it and how it grew and the growing pains and all of that and his, his attempt to... Um, kind of demonstrate conscious leadership and implement it. You know, it's a really amazing case study. It's obviously now been bought by Amazon, so it becomes swallowed um, by a, a, a different entity. Um, and so it becomes a more complicated picture to, to point to Amazon and say that this is the most conscious business out there. Um, I, I'm certainly not, not suggesting that. Um, but there are companies out there. Patagonia is often given as a um, as a great example, um, female CEO, um, and a, a really kind of beautiful integrated strategy um, that rolls out through the sustainability of the product into the way that the business is run, sort of nuts and bolts, and all the way through. Um, and you know, in some of the books that you read on this topic, um, you know, there are there are tables put together which show that conscious businesses outperform their rivals, and it it does make sense because um, if we're really focusing on everybody pulling in the same direction, everybody being aligned behind a higher purpose, everybody's needs being seen as important rather than people, for example, being seen as cogs in a machine or as deserving of giving their pound of flesh for you know, whatever treatment, um, then you, know, you, get, you get a different level of trust, you get a different level of loyalty. Um, but it's very much, you know, this is the, the first decade that you know, conscious leadership really is, or the second decade that conscious leadership has been a, a term that people are using. So what you're looking at at the moment is really a tinkering in the conscious leadership, conscious capitalism space. Um, but I do believe that it's very much um, the future. You know, it's kind of an essential aspect of the human survival strategy um, for this century is really to bring in enough awareness so that our, our capitalist um, companies and governmental structures don't eat each other, you know, which is sort of the outcome of 
everything getting bigger and bigger and bigger and winning and you know more winners more losers um is that you know we eat we eat each other we eat the planet you know it's kind of like resources you know munched there needs to be a lot more innovation and creativity which i think covid was pretty good for um in order to to take us in a new direction so it's knife edge stuff (laughs) (laughs) sure enough and your book conscious leadership aims to help individuals to to understand to understand what's required uh, i know it's uh, what 20 proactive lessons um tell us a little bit more about that book I mean, what's the, how does that book serve the greater purpose that we're talking about yeah, so I, I wanted to make um, a really sort of practical introduction to conscious leadership, um, which was very directed towards um, activities and practices and practical small things to implement. Um, sometimes when we hear about conscious leadership, it sounds like this sort of heady idea that is attempting to save the world. Um, and we think, God, oh, that's a bit much to sort of deal with on a Tuesday morning. I've got 10 minutes. <laughs> um, so I wanted to make a book that, you know, is something that you could dive into, that you could sort of see the scope of it. So it's laid out into these kind of five different sections from self-knowledge to self-maintenance, self-management, self-development and self-realization. And each has got these four topics. And you can sort of just look at one by one, maybe find a practice to try that day. Um, you know, you can read a chapter on, um, you know, on the way on a bus or whatever. It's kind of an easy read um, just so that you get a sense of conscious leadership is actually something that I can uh, aspire to, that I can bring into my own day to day work. I can bring aspects of it home um, and and that it's not such a sort of lofty thing. Here's some really simple, practical aspects where essentially um we're we're all going on this kind of journey of you know the book was almost called self-mastery um and really you know that's what leadership really is about really most leadership training is about self-development looking in looking at our you know the our, our constrictions our triggers working through them overcoming our uh, uh, barriers and you know stepping into potential and you know that that is what um, you know this book is for building awareness and giving tools. Sure. So it's definitely it's the style of book is you can pick it up, open it anywhere, read that chapter or that lesson and put it down again and pick it up and do the same again. It's intended that way to be accessible. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and it certainly it talks about. Um, the tools to increase your emotional intelligence, to build stress resilience and lead yourself and others with greater compassion, clarity and joy. I'm interested about the emotional, well, all of it, but the emotional intelligence piece. Um, how do you how do you weave that into the training that you offer? And how do you bring that to the table for your clients? Yeah, so um in all of the trainings that we're doing, whether we're sort of naming emotional intelligence or not, um, we are supporting and cultivating um, emotional intelligence in in participants because 
you know, we talked about mindfulness as being this kind of mapping of our thoughts, emotions, and sensations. Um, so emotions are in there. And um, the human being is an emotional animal, um, as much as, you know, some people will, will tell you they're not, or that, you know, they don't express their emotions or whatever. Uh, the human being is an emotional creature. There's just no getting away from it. It's a that's a sort of factual matter. Um, and yet, in in the workplace, we've we've got all these messages um, around how our emotional life is sort of completely unwelcome. And as a result of that, um, most people find themselves operating um, or attempting to operate in a sort of emotionally free or clinical uh, way in order to develop emotional intelligence the first part of it is to develop emotional self-awareness and if we've got a lot of messages which are saying that we can't be in contact with our emotions because it's not safe or appropriate for our environment um, which a lot of guys actually get that message very early on you know boys can't cry all of that kind of um, stuff that's being broken down at the moment and kind of reworked and looked at again um, is really doing doing men a disservice um, and women um, to to cut people off from their emotional reality um, leaves them with this kind of sense of the emotions being some kind of threat um that needs to be managed in the sort of military sense of you know putting up boundaries and barriers and you know barricades so yeah there's, there's a lot of um there's a lot of socialization and sort of thought structures um to unpick when we start looking at emotional intelligence because we have to in, enter an emotional intelligence conversation um, by becoming more emotionally articulate individually. Um, mm. so what, one of the apps that we recommend to people is um, one by, I think it's called Mark Brackett. Um, it's called Mood Meter. Um, and it just gives you these prompts to check in occasionally and to, to just figure out what you're feeling. A lot of people, um, if you ask them what they're feeling, will say they're, they're good or they're fine or, you know, sort of a neutral state. Um, but it, it helps you to become more articulate around expressing what the actual emotions are that you're feeling and whether they're high energy or low energy and kind of what it's characterized by. Um, and that's the first step. Yeah, thank you. We'll put a link to that in the show notes for sure. I'll, uh, I'll be checking it out myself. Um, so that's EI. Um, building stress resilience. I mean, the last couple of years, and counting uh, the, the language around resilience, um, the acceptance of the need, the benefit of helping people become more resilient um, is clearly something that, yeah, again. For that, silver. you have to turn <laughs> off aeroplane mode. Look at that. Hey, <laughs> go Google. My phone is in aeroplane mode and still it does that. How good, huh? Thanks, Google. <laughs> well, you, you need to, yeah, for stress resilience, you definitely need to, to turn off that mode. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. I mean, I, I wonder what it was that it listened to, what it, which word it was that it heard. Um, anyway, um, but that, you know, that's for me, as we've talked about silver lining, the fact that there's much greater awareness around it. Um, again, when it comes to stress resilience, I'm interested to hear how you weave that into your 
training, you know, when you're working with your clients or groups of clients, uh, I mean, clearly meditation. Uh, I, I'm yeah, sure so, one. Yeah. For, for stress resilience, you know, we talk about mindset anchors um, and, and practices. Um, so you know, just to give an example, one of my mindset anchors is um, the quote by Rumi, live life as if everything is rigged in your favor. Um, and it's just something that, you know, I, I come back to and it holds a bit of a sort of vibrational anchor for me, um, particularly when, you know, something challenging might be going on. Um, and then we really encourage people to find practices that work for them and um, resonate for them in order to, to reset. So, you know, as a human being, it's very difficult for us to imagine that we're going to go through a, a, a full you know, day or week without in some way being triggered into um, some sort of fear or anxiety, however intense that might modulate, you know, depending on what's going on in our lives at the time. Um, so, you know, instead of trying to dodge anything that might um, take us away from calm and stability, it's about finding practices um, that work for you regularly to to get you back into a productive um, mindset and a, a calm vibration yeah so uh, you know when we go into a sort of we do a, a training on mindfulness stress and performance we go into the brain science of kind of what happens when you know the amygdala is triggered and what's happening to the brain and which parts of the brain go offline. And, you know, we, we go through all of that. The outcome of it though, um, to sort of shortcut it, is that if when we're panicking, we can remain connected to the breath and the body, um, then we can remain connected to our rational thinking um, and be much more productive in the way that we manage it. So often, you know, we sort of have the stimulus which might send us into panic if we can insert the practice there, even if it's a 20 second practice, um, we can have a very different experience of the next five minutes than if we just flow from the panic into dealing with whatever has happened. Um, and then over the time when people sort of find the thing that works for them, um, and it starts showing up, they'll start reporting that they're having a very different experience of their day, of their week, of their life. Um, because stress resilience is something that's not taught very often on the way to becoming, you know, uh, uh, you know whatever you do professionally. Um, you know, it's often not, not trained very thoroughly. Um, and so, you know, helping people individually or in group to kind of come to practices that work is, is our method sure thanks and do you use meditation therefore to install those triggers to, to change um so stimulus occurs to then rather than following the normal behavior to become more aware um and yeah uh, you know we we try and introduce a, a range of different practices um so you know for example one of the ones that that we teach is called fhb um so something triggers you in your world you notice that you've been triggered um and you feel your feet on the floor you place your hands on your heart and the body's on breathing so feet on floor hand on heart body on breathing um and it just allows you to stabilize at three points of contact 
into the physical body. And so, you know, you practice that for even 20 seconds. You know, most people, once they've done it for 20 seconds, because it feels good, <laughs> they want to do it a bit more. Um, so they do it a little bit more. Yep. Um, and then it's as if you're saying, ah, oh, I don't have to depart myself. And when we don't depart the body and the heart and the mind, we can engage with all of our resources online. Um, and it's very different from you know, how we're taught to engage, which is generally mind only. Um, you know, a lot of people are taught to solve problems by thinking about their problems, worrying about their problems. Um, but real problem solving uh, or wise problem solving, perhaps we might say, occurs when we remain connected to the body, the heart, and then bring the mind on. The route to accessing wisdom is through the body, through the heart, into the mind. It's not straight to mind. Um, right. and, and most people were never taught the route to wisdom. Um, and it's it's a really powerful, simple practice. Yeah, I'm interested that um, I think there's still less so, but still some stereotypes out there around what meditation is and how it looks and how it has to be performed. Um, and maybe that, yeah, in the good old days, Hollywood played a part in that and TV shows and so on. Um, you have a, you, your other book is 100 Mindfulness Meditations. Um, I'm fascinated how you came to, to write that, create that book, and write the book. Um, that, to have 100 different mindfulness meditations uh, so I was trying to write a book for about four years um, and um, it was going to be called The Conscious Professional. You had plenty of notepads by all accounts. So. What's that? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, still got a lot of notepads as well. Um, but I've been trying to write this book for like four years and uh, it was called The Conscious Professional. It was going to basically you know, go along with the business and, you know, be the sort of, this is what the you know, business stands for and all the rest of it. And, and this is what a conscious professional is. And it just wasn't sticking. And, it, you know, anyway, I was getting frustrated with it. And then one morning um, I woke up with an idea, having been thumbing through a recipe book. So this recipe book was called Genius Recipes or something. Beautiful book. And um, I was like, ooh, wouldn't it be cool to have a recipe book of meditations? Um, because a lot of the meditations at the time uh, were all the same. It was like a mountain one, there was a lake one, there was a body scan one. Like there was a set of meditations that were out there and different people led them, but that was kind of it. Um, and I'd always sort of almost made up meditations on the fly when I taught and wove in what we were talking about. And I really liked the sort of creative experience of that. So I thought, wouldn't it be cool to have um, a recipe book of meditations and to create a sort of a way of dipping in to very different practices to inspire people to kind of get into practice a bit like a recipe book inspires people to cook different stuff. It's like, how about trying this? Um, and, and I wrote the book in six months from start to like it was published within six months. Um, and so that sort of was a lesson to me and sort of a ripe idea is the one to go with um, rather than one that seems like it should be right. Yeah, sure. Um, well, congratulations on that. That's, uh, that's rapid fire. Yeah. No, that was fantastic. Um, 
what would be great uh, i mean we we could take a deep dive into describing meditation and, and the benefits of it um but but if you're open to it we have the opportunity i guess we're both live now uh, and we could you could guide me and the listeners through a practice um, if you're open yeah. to it yeah of course i'd love to um as if there's a term of putting you on the spot <laughs> you just said you enjoyed the creativity of that so <laughs> um what one of the main issue one of the, one of the top three let's say um challenges a lot of the the clients we deal with that they talk about and it's it's one of the big barriers to um, many other elements of improving their lives is just a lack of time they're just so busy 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 they're busy at work they're busy at home they're just busy and don't have enough time and often we, we find that they're sacrificing their health and well-being through the perception that they don't have time to take care of themselves so um if that's an appropriate subject time then we could yeah you you <laughs> the royal we you could um guide me and the listener through a practice around time sounds good so yeah let's go straight into it look at that no time to prepare <laughs> okay so i'm going to guide the practice with my eyes open but just inviting those who are listening if it's appropriate for your situation uh if you do wish to close your eyes then just um do so now and if not just hold a gentle soft gaze and we're just going to um ensure that the body is sitting comfortably feet flat on the floor and just allow a sense of aliveness just to energize the spine, whether that brings a little bit of, of tallness or just allows you to soften, just be guided by your body, whatever feels good for today. And as we drop in, we're just going to bring our attention to the breath. So we start with the breath. The breath is the doorway of mindfulness. So noticing the breath out the nostrils, and we're breathing in through the nose and breathing out through the nose, lips together, teeth slightly apart and just relaxing the muscles at the back of the neck, allowing the chin to drop forward just one centimeter. Just noticing if there's any tension in the jaw and just breathing a little bit of relaxation to those muscles and an invitation to soften. And so we drop in on the breath and as the breath drops in, awareness begins to gather also. Perhaps even imagining the warmth of awareness dissolving through the body like ink, dissolving through water. And here in practice, we might just get that sensation of landing. Landing in the body, on the breath. And as we land, we start to notice that our presence enriches this moment of time. 
we begin to notice things which had been dialed out of awareness. Perhaps noticing the texture of clothing on skin. Noticing the warmth of the body. Landing in the feet, noticing this point of contact between the physical body and the physical earth, even through socks and shoes and carpet and concrete and timber. We are connected, body and planet. And so we remind ourselves of everything that it has taken for us to appear in this way today. Remembering all of our footsteps throughout the whole of our life have been leading to this seat. To this now, and here we are with the ability to breathe presence into this moment. Mindfulness is a practice of embodiment, and it is one in which we remember ourselves. The word remember means we put ourselves back together. The breath leads us into the body, the legs, the feet, the torso, the arms, the neck, the head, the skull, the eyes, the ears, the nose, the scalp, the hair, the skin. We find ourselves breathing through the body, in and through the body, feeling the awareness, the vibration of life, this process of dynamic, spontaneous life in which we are a participant, a passenger, a witness, both object and subject. We can come alive in the remembering of body and being and place and time. And so we might notice that mindfulness and presence doesn't take time, but gifts us time. The purpose of mindfulness is so that we don't miss out on our lives. So that we're here, so that we're present. So that we notice ourselves in and through time, both ways that human beings experience time as the fleeting present moment, but also as the eternal now, the narrative, the story of our lives. And so as we breathe here, connected through time and space, just reflecting for right now, for today, what is the most important thing 
to remember? What is the most important thing to remember? And remember the most important thing is to remember the most important thing. And how can you express that in one practical action as you set forth from practice today? And so we will gather ourselves back through the body on the breath, finding the waves of the breath following the next exhale up and out, alighting once again at the tip of the nose, the nostrils, the sensations of air, the warmth of the exhale, and in your very own time, allowing the eyes to reopen. I have to say that felt very self-serving. <laughs> <laughs> I, I appreciated it very much and I'm conscious that anyone listening, if they, if they weren't in a position whilst listening to this, then I, I hope they really do make a note to go back and, and sit through that practice and, and participate in that practice. Out of interest, how long was that? I think it was about five minutes. It's fascinating, isn't it? Her time, I mean, I, I meditate daily, um, albeit only 10 or 15 minutes. Um, but I always kind of lose sense of track of time, uh, which I appreciate because I, yeah. I'm being present, I'm being in the moment and, and focusing, um, which is part of the point, right? Yeah. Um, but for anyone, I mean, a lot of the stuff we do in, in Level Up, um, which is only a five-week, you know, it's a primer uh, peak performance of productivity. And, and we, we introduce breath work, we introduce all sorts of things, but they're only five minutes. And even though we guide people to say, well, if you've got 20 minutes, then that would be amazing. But if you haven't, then just give it a go for five minutes. And it's so powerful, even just five minutes. And first, for anyone who thinks they don't have five minutes or 10 minutes in their day um, to, to practice some form of mindfulness, in this case, meditation, um, then I think they're missing the trick. <laughs> it feels amazing. Yeah, I think when people say they don't have time for mindfulness, what they're really saying is they don't consider it important enough to give five minutes of time to which is fine. Um, yeah. But I think, you know, I sometimes call BS on people's time issues around that. Um, and, um, you know, say you, you only need the same level of professionalism with mindfulness as you do with brushing your teeth. Um, and pretty much all adults um, brush their teeth twice a day. And it's not something you don't get people at the office going, oh, I haven't got time to brush my teeth. Sorry. <laughs> my breath stinks or whatever people don't say that it's like no it just happens because you consider it an important thing to do um and i think at some point it clicks with people it's like oh this little mental hygiene thing that i do which is takes five minutes um or whatever is actually really important but they have to kind of see and feel the the benefit of it in their lives to notice that kind of consciousness modulation that anchoring 
um, that can take place in a short time to 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 realize it's worth worthwhile. Absolutely, and, and as you said, when when something feels good, we're motivated to do more of it. Um, I, I know that you, you created. I'm interested at what stage you felt the need to create your online um, meditation program. So learn how to meditate in ten days, um, Zen in ten. At what stage in your journey did you realize that people just needed needed a way of learning how to do this? So um, I think I, I've al always known that, like, you know, the, for the from the beginning of kind of the business, I knew that, you know, people needed to to be welcomed into the practice in a way that, you know, felt real and relevant to them. Um, I think because you know, from a very slow start of nobody being interested in my business to it getting busier over the years up until um, you know, 2020 when COVID hit. By then I had become so busy that I wasn't really going to have time to create a, an online course because I was doing so many speaking engagements and, um, and so on. Um, but COVID gave me the opportunity to, to stop. I had more space and time. Um, everybody was at home and, and was looking for, you know, online learning to replace some of the in-person things that we'd lost through through lockdown and so on. Um, and so it sort of provided the, the right moment. Um, and I suppose that the other impetus for it was, you know, there's there is a place for all of these mindfulness um, courses and apps and things where, you're carried through the practice by music or guidance um, or, you know, um, some sort of talk or whatever. Um, but I wanted, you know, I've always really wanted to leave people with the ability to meditate without any of the crutches um, so that they actually could feel for themselves that they, they are the person doing the meditation or being the meditation rather than having it done to them by a, a teacher or a guide or music or whatever um, because it that is sort of the pro challenge of mindfulness can we can we create the state in our own silence from you know stress and worry can we navigate into center can we come back into our own inner hum of, of quiet um, and that's what i wanted to teach people in the schools that's that's what's different about it really yeah, and no, absolutely. You know, it was, it was interesting when when we had our sort of pre-chat, um, and since then, of course, I, I've I've gone through Zen in ten, and and for years I've used Headspace as a form of guided meditation, and in fact, I had never experienced anything else, and so I, I'm now weaning myself off guided meditation as a result of going through Zen in ten, and I really appreciate it. I hadn't really thought about. Um, I hadn't thought about it, but there had been occasions where I didn't have a very good like signal for my phone. Yeah. So actually I missed a few, I missed doing it. I, I skipped it because, well, I, I didn't really, or I was traveling and yeah. you know, back in the good old days, didn't want to, you know, the, the roaming charges were brutal um, and Wi-Fi wasn't so prominent um, yeah, as in public Wi-Fi and so on. And so, yeah, it was really interesting. I, there was nothing about it, even though I, I think there are huge benefits to it, and I'm a supporter of it. I have to say, I had never thought about the fact that I was beholden to it. I hadn't actually learned. I was, yeah, I hadn't learned how to do it independently, and I appreciate very much that Zen and Ten um, 
focuses on that uh, yeah. and empowers you to to develop your own ability to meditate yeah. where when and how you like ultimately good that's really lovely feedback thank you it's that's that was the aim of it so it's it's good to see that it's helping with that that specific aim yeah absolutely and of course we'll we'll link to that in the show notes um so yeah and having been through it i can personally say it, it's fabulous um and it doesn't take a lot of time yeah. <laughs> so if you're time for <laughs> know that it's going to be a great roi here <laughs> for sure um neil i'm conscious of time um i mean frankly i i think i could talk to you all day um but i am conscious of time um i mean i appreciate that we you, you've guided me and, and the audience through that practice is there anything else you'd like to uh, it's always nice and i know you feel the same way to to leave the listener with something um so with, even if it's just a a final thought or a piece of advice um anything really is there anything you'd like to share with the audience that we haven't touched on or maybe you'd like to emphasize something we have um so yeah just share something that i'm i'm working on in my own practice personally which is um one of the things I do at the moment is I try and track all the ways in which I contract during the day on in the day um, and sort of take it as my challenge to see if I can catch them and find a way of releasing them in the moment. Um, I'm not very good at it, um, but it is it's a really interesting challenge to notice all the little, you know, we have big triggers, which are really obvious. But all the little triggers, things that happen, things that irritate me, um, things that people say, you know, people walking out in front of me, all sorts of little things hmm. that happen around me um, and see if I can notice those and and sort of um, work through them. You know, what is it? What has what has taken me into irritation or frustration? Can I name that? Can I be with it? Can I release it? And another question I really like to ask myself, which is helping me with this contractions thing, is do I do that? So often the things that really irritate me when I ask myself the question, do I do that? Right. I yeah. also do it. I'm also guilty of doing it to Great other question. people. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, this isn't a sort of fully worked piece of advice or anything. It's more a practice I'm tinkering with uh, in case it resonates with anyone else to have a go at. And how do you do that? I mean, do you do you, do you make notes or is it just mental notes? Um, it's mostly mental notes. Um, I will, I think, at some point download it all a bit more thoroughly um, because I think it would be useful. Be useful to kind of see see all the different triggers and their different sort of levels of intensity. Um, you know, it's probably an exercise that's sort of cult, you know, creating in its. Uh, for, for a training course or something down the line when I've got it figured out. Um, but I think it's a really interesting practice to see, you know, what are all the things that take me off center? Um, and, and sometimes a lot of little things take you quite far away from center. And how do I get myself back? So, um, yeah. That must be leading to a, a need for you, an even greater sense of self-awareness. You're actively looking for those. You're ready. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm sort of um, obsessed with personal development and, and building awareness. And so, yeah, I have a big appetite for kind of figuring, figuring these little bits out. 
Yeah, fantastic. Well, I, I appreciate it. it's a fantastic final share to say. Um, well, thank you to everyone for listening. And if you've enjoyed this, please go ahead and share it, of course, and leave us a review on whichever platform you're using. It really does help uh, more than you know. The algorithms get hold of that and help to share the love. And if you're interested in grabbing a copy of my book, Lead by Example, which talks about how to unleash your potential at work in life, I would love to send you a copy of it. If you could just go to theimpactproject.io, take a deep dive down that rabbit hole, and it'll be in your doorstep in no time. Obviously, my thanks to Neil. We'll be posting all of the various links to, to his socials, um, his website for sure, um, the books, the, the, the two books that Neil's written, and then the program and the app that was mentioned earlier in this conversation it'll all be there in the show notes um so neil thank you very much indeed it's been a pleasure having you here thanks matt it's been wonderful i really enjoyed the conversation thanks for having me yeah absolutely and until next time uh, for everyone listening it's time to be brave have fun and make yourself busy making an impact on the world <laughs>